listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. All right, this week it's the annual Halloween Spooktacular, the scary and shocking moments of opera that will have you lose your head. And then, in the listener mailbag, a field report from Donald and PJ, and perfect for the Spooktacular, it's a review of Opera Arizona's Frankenstein from listener Dale. Plus, Roll Tide? Then in the two-minute drill, the scariest thing about opera? Well, I'd have to say, the sexism. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign, send us a voice memo, or email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxscore.com, or just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website, operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you'll get an OBS beer coaster, an OBS lapel pin, and the all-new number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot takes. Frankly, Oliver, the amount of deals we have right now for for the amount of merch we have, it's scary. I assume you're going to lay over a scary noise over sexism, like some crows going or something like that, right? (laughs) Chains clanking. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Yes. And Matt Cummings, what are your opinions on sexism? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to have to say against it. (laughs) <laughs> oh, come good starting come off with strong, strong, spicy strong take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know we are we are not in a position to talk. We don't have Ashley or George for this uh, Halloween spooktacular. We do have some sports talk here from George Cedarquist. He says Sunday's quarterback starter for the Bears was Tyson Bagant. He's a D2 quarterback who went to Shepherd University in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And he's the first D2 quarterback to start in the NFL for over a decade. Maybe his name is uh, Tyson Bajon. Bajon. Did we, did we check? <laughs> From Berger uh, University. Apologies yeah. to Tyson Bajon. Uh, um, over the weekend, uh, the 21-year-old American tennis player Ben Shelton uh, took the title in the Tokyo Open. Uh He's having an incredible year. He jumped the ranking from the start of the season from 96. He now is in 15th in the ATP ranking. So congratulations to Ben Shelton. His father is also a tennis player. I think when he was um, first on the tour, I think every time he left the country, uh, it was like his first time, you know, having been in that country. And like as a professional tennis player, you, you know, do a lot of traveling. But he has like this sort of osh, like, very like wide-eyed, like I can't believe this is happening to me, type of attitude, and it's just really maybe a, joy. a little bit of fear, Oliver. <laughs> he's a little frightened, maybe at the the horror Perfect. of the new places Perfect. he's in. Perfect seg. Perfect. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Chalk talk on opera box score. So we've come back to our uh, annual spooktacular. And this year we're going back to basics. We've we've experimented with this episode in the past few years, but I think we really should just celebrate what makes opera scary. Mm. And uh, I think categorically the operas that we're talking about today are in foreign languages. But you have to think 
that, you know, when these operas premiered and when audiences are being exposed to these texts for the first time, maybe they didn't see the source play and maybe their first experience with uh, the narrative was actually at the opera. Some of these things are actually quite shocking. And I think, you know, we have the removal of time and the removal of uh, language that makes us uh, not necessarily sense that something is that scary. But when you really look at these things more more closely and try to imagine yourself being, you know, whatever in the 19th century and witnessing these things for the first time, they were pretty upsetting and horrifying. So we're going to do a little tour of some scary moments in opera and our first uh, shocking moment uh, comes from Verdi. Yes, yes, that's right. It comes from Verdi's Rigoletto. He, this is uh, a moment from Act 3 of the opera, and the plot has been unwinding through the evening through some pretty unsightly horrors already by the time we get to Act 3, and that's not even counting the political censorship that went into the making of the opera. <laughs> but, <laughs> but just... <laughs> Just a short list of some of the horrible things that have happened already. The Duke seduced Soprano right in front of her husband. Monteroni was put to death for for cursing the Duke and Rigoletto for raping his daughter. Rigoletto is considering murder. Gilda is being locked up to protect her from people who would want to hurt her, such as the Duke, who seduces her and then leaves. The courtiers, who kidnap her, as a joke. The courtiers then make fun of Rigoletto for making for trying to get her back, and they laugh at him while she while his daughter gets assaulted in the other room. Uh, the Duke continues to womanize and think about no one but himself, while Rigoletto hires an assassin to kill him. So, <laughs> we are nearing the dramatic climax of and, the and evening. And I think, I mean, yes, we continue, but I think assault is a light word for what's actually happening to to Gilda. Yes. And, you know, let's assume that she's a teenager and that she is a virgin, and uh, the Duke is more experienced. <laughs> to say the least. So. By a factor of a thousand. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so the, the, dra- the dramatic climax of this opera happens during a thunderstorm. And thunderstorms in opera are nothing new, and they're not always very scary. Like, they do feature prominently in comic operas to, like, act as an obstacle or an inconvenience or a, a clever way when you need to pivot within a plot. Or if you uh, want to give the percussionist something to do, you give them a metal sheet and just tell them to exactly. go to town. But in dramatic operas like here, uh, it, it's used both as kind of foreshadowing and as a way to just turn the drama up to 11 real fast. Uh, <laughs> and yet, this thunderstorm really, like, leaves them all in the dust, as far as I'm concerned. Because it ha- you have the this split-screen kind of moment of Gilda being outside trying to figure out how to save the Duke, who she still loves for some reason, and Madalena, who is trying to convince her brother, the assassin Sparfuchile, not to kill him, but to betray Brigoletto instead. So even though the audience doesn't necessarily... If they don't know what is going to happen, like, you can already kind of get a pit in your stomach from feeling the dr- the pieces of the dramatic irony, like, sort of click into place. Uh... I want to play a clip from the 1977 Met telecast first and then talk a little bit about what it was that you heard that created that spookiness. Salvar. 
You just heard Eliana Koturubash, Isola Jones, and Justino Diaz, and we don't need to talk about who is conducting it, speaking of spooky scary. <laughs> That's pretty spooky. <laughs> the, so the way that Ver- first of all, the way Verdi wrote this storm is extremely realistic. Like, you hear it kind of build in a distance with bolts of lightning and raindrops in the flute, and thunder and the low strings, and the wind from the offstage chorus of ooze. And mm. then all of a sudden, this is this is all before the clip that you heard, but then all of a sudden it hits and you get that aggressive driving rhythm in the voices as the rain starts to come down in, like in sheets and the, the, the layering gets more and more agitated and more and closer together. And then all of a sudden, uh, Jill just takes off and her vocal line soars over the storm. And the only thing that can stop her is her, her willingness to take the knife uh, instead of the Duke. Yeah. And... Then all of a sudden the bell tolls 12. The winds pick up. The harmony changes and Jilda knocks on the door. This is where the clip starts. There is a brief uh, recap of all of that storm music that you that we heard earlier. And then to really twist the knife, we go into a coda. And Madalena and Sparafuchili keep bickling, bickering. She's holding this pedal tone of a D constant while he sings the descending figure that's like the sheets of rain in the orchestra. And against all of this, Jilda really twist the knife by singing this perdona over over and over again first in unison with madalena and then the second one is in seconds and you like the dissonance there is just so wrenching you almost hear like her waver and her resolve but then like she finds the courage to go through with it and it moves back into a consonant interval uh and she does go like she takes off and ends up getting stabbed. And the whole time you are sitting there wishing it wouldn't happen, but you know that it's going to. All while mm-hmm. this storm is going absolutely nuts as if to cover up the violence so that no one will figure out what happened until later. I love the atmosphere that is created in these sort of like romantic era operas with storms, especially. There's something so... uh I think in that era, you know, storms were even scarier than they were now. You know, when you have the uh, advent of the modern meteorologist, I think that you lose some of the mystique of the storm. (laughs) There's Um, no divine intervention. (laughs) (laughs) Meteorology is very anti-Halloween. You you heard it here first. Uh, I I want to bring another little uh, sort of atmospheric scene to the table. It's not a storm scene. Um, but in my mind, this is sort of the beginning of the of horror in opera. This is from um, uh, from Carmaria von Weber's Der Freischutz, which, you know, also one of the first true romantic operas. Um, and this is specifically the Wolf's Glen scene. Uh, I don't really have a clip for it because really to get the full effect of the Wolf's Glen scene, you kind of have to hear the whole thing. We don't have time for that. Um, but I think that just goes to show how it was he was being he was thinking about it when he was composing it. Uh, this is very unusual writing and dramatic uh, storytelling from what you had seen in opera up until this point. Um, when you, I know the first time I was told, oh, you have to listen to the Wolf's Glen scene, Wolf's Glen scene from uh, Freischutz, I was expecting something a little more conventionally musical, especially for an opera written in 1821, but it's really not. There's a lot of effects going on. A lot of what's being said is being spoken and often intoned as 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 uh, as possible by whoever is playing Kaspar. <laughs> 
Uh, this is a really sort of dramatic, uh, drama-first way approach to, uh, to, to bringing opera to the masses. It wasn't so much inspired by anything in the operatic world as it was in the sort of... Uh, uh, a cheap, bad theater world. Uh, during this time period, a very popular form of entertainment was the Phantasmagoria, uh, which was essentially a theater piece where you would go and they would tell essentially ghost stories. This is where you see like the first use of like the um, uh, the projections and like magic lantern type of uh, things where, you know, someone would appear on stage half translucent. Then you'd have people in the back of the stage or even the back of the house sometimes making scary noises, creating this atmosphere. It was not looked on as high art. Um, so when you see a lot of those techniques, not necessarily the projection, but the offstage chorus, that was really unusual for 1821, uh, using these strange vocal uh, vocalizations and like this uncertain ghostly atmosphere. It was really, really unique. And it was something that audiences, I think, after so long sitting in the classical world of enlightenment uh, type of operas were hungry for. This was a massive hit. It reminds me of like, you know, uh, the success of, you know, horror films throughout the years. You know, ever since horror films got started, they were an instant smash hit because they were cheap to produce and uh, they could have a huge, huge box office return. Um, and you didn't really see that in opera because, you know, like horror films for a long time, they weren't thought of as real art. These kind of uh, scary sort of storytelling things were only things that the the low people were interested in. But Weber understood that opera through the use of music could really enhance this kind of primal fear, this almost extra musical sound from musical instruments and singing and chorus and put it together into an atmosphere that still feels kind of chilling, you know, uh, two centuries later. And I, that's just one of the reasons I just love the Wolf's Glen scene in Freischutz so much. Well, we're jumping over uh, the rest of the 19th century and we land in 1926 for the premiere of Turandot. And we can talk about the uh, cultural appropriation and the maybe racist uh, sound world of Torondot and the exoticization of an entire country. <laughs> um, but, you know, Puccini would say that he really fell in love with this sound and he wanted to introduce, you know, this musical landscape, you know, even if he's just taking the most basic ideas about Chinese instruments and Chinese music and putting it in this opera. Um, you know, it is, this is how we first learn about other cultures, you know, in this type of way. Yes, it's exotic and yes, it could be offensive, but uh, it is a very exciting show. And I will posit that act one is the best act of Turandot, even though Turandot has an amazing act too. Uh, act two is also the most racist act. <laughs> <laughs> the true horror was racism all along. Yeah, well, ping, pang, and pong, it just, you can erase yeah, it from it's the pretty opera. Bad. It's really, <laughs> like, really, you just need to do the riddle scene and in Quest yeah. Omega from act two and the rest <laughs> of it just, like, snip, 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 <laughs> not needed. Please don't make me watch them. The first act is so horrifying. The chorus is savage in this show. Sure, they are... They are bloodthirsty 
And they're just like ready for the spectacle of somebody uh, trying to answer Turandot's riddles and losing. The Prince of Persia is a character who we're hearing about the entire, you know, the first scene of the show. Originally played by Jake Gyllenhaal. (laughs) (laughs) And we don't really get to hear him sing except for one word. He sings Turandot's name uh, right after Kalaf, the the unknown prince, uh, realizes that just after seeing Turandot for one moment, seeing a glimpse of her, and the glimpse he sees of her is of him, of her giving the thumbs down, like the the emperor's thumb down. <laughs> like, nope, the prince of Persia will die uh, because he didn't answer the riddles. And uh, yeah, he see, he catches a glimpse of her and he gets the biggest boner of all of opera. <laughs> and uh, Which is really a lot of That's saying something. <laughs> And and Kalaf is you know talking to his dad you know it's like no I'm I'm gonna do this I'm gonna press the button I'm gonna go for it you know and so he sings and then in a different key we hear the Prince of Persia as the executioner's uh, machete comes down in his neck uh, mm. also sing Torondot in just a slightly different key which is you know for um, Opera goers who are used to tonal music, you know, by now the idea of atonality had been introduced and there are plenty of composers who were doing it. Um, Puccini wasn't really on board with it, but this may be his most atonal opera for moments just like this. So it's it's you know it's it's subtle for our modern ears. I mean, uh, this idea of two chords that don't go well together <laughs> uh, is explored <laughs> uh, very extensively in Strauss's Electra, and this is sort of Puccini's little Electra moment. Actually, this whole first act of Turandot feels like um, Puccini's response. I mean, certainly, to if you're going in there expecting like La Boheme, you are going to be yeah. surprised at some of the things yeah. that you hear. <laughs> It's the blood that I think is the difference. I mean, you know, I, I always said that the, that the Zeffirelli production of uh, La Boheme should just be chock full of buckets of blood, but no one ever listens to me. 
Hmm. Speaking of buckets of blood, let's move now to the Soviet Union during the height of the <laughs> Stalin era. Uh, this is uh, one of my favorite operas, uh, and uh, this is from Lady Macbeth of the Matens- Matensk district. What's scary is my Russian pronunciation. The other thing that's scary is the evocation of the word Macbeth in the theater, no less. Uh, really asking for trouble there, Shasti. Uh, this is a really uh, great opera that famously we're talking about like how the initial audience felt about it. And we have a very specific, vivid story of what at least one audience member felt about this opera. This came out in the uh, late 30s, I think 36. Um, and uh, uh, it was actually incredibly well received. It was praised for how uh, well it was um uh, how well it depicted like the blood and guts of like you know the 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 hard peasant life in in uh, uh, in Russia and you know the Czarist Russia specifically even though there's definitely some overtones uh, about uh, crit- criticizing the um, the Stalin regime as well uh, and it was really well received uh, for the co- sort of extremes it would go to. Um, most negative reviews mostly focused on the uh, the sexual aspects. There is a very graphic um, sexual assault, to put it lightly, again, uh, seen earlier in the opera that is musically depicted um, that is uh, honestly kind of horrifying in its own right. Um, but I want to focus on, because it's Halloween and we don't want to get too far into the uh, you know, uh, sexism and racism train uh, <laughs> right after Turandot. Uh, so I think we might talk more about just plain old murder, which is a lot more fun uh, for uh, Halloween purposes. So this is near the very end of the opera. And uh, to kind of give you a sense of what's gone on, basically Lady Macbeth in the title is actually Katarina, and she has had just the worst time. You know, she's... Uh, uh, had affairs, you know, uh, is now in poverty. Um, she has done things to save herself that others would consider horrible. That's thus the the Lady Macbeth um, uh, uh, sort of connection there. It's all sort of the idea is that the poverty and the and the horrible oppression of her being a woman in the society have really forced her to do some terrible things. And this is the ultimate terrible thing here at the end. She is uh, on a forced march to Siberia um, to basically become a to become a prisoner to do forced labor labor up there. And uh, she essentially bribes a guard to allow her to meet Sergei, who is her lover at this point, who is m- fairly responsible for her being there, for being honest. Um, and uh, he is very mean to her. He's very nasty, even though she didn't really do anything to him. And the second she's like out of eyesight, she tries to seduce. Uh, he tries to seduce another con a convict, and that convict wants a pair of you know stockings. It's a whole thing, and so Sergei comes back to Katarina and apologizes. He sweet talks her, says like I'm so sorry that I did all this, you know, um, and he basically tricks her into giving him her stockings, and then immediately turns around and gives them to the other woman. Uh, and as the other woman puts it on, she starts taunting uh, and laughing at Katerina, and it just builds and builds and builds orchestrally as they're literally laughing at her. All these convicts on this forced march to Siberia, just one more, like, little little needle in the eye of Katerina, 
and the orchestra gets huge. You hear the trumpets blaring. The the percussion is going crazy. It's just Shostakov just wants to do just like overwhelmingly um, uh, horrifying and, you know, intense. And then it collapses into this extremely low, extremely quiet tremolo. And there's this really, really moment of clarity for Katarina. And you can see and feel her quiet rage. And she sings one more aria and the and the march starts back up again. And as they begin to march, she tackles the other woman who got the stockings and throws her and herself into a frozen river where they both are carried off and freeze slash uh, drown to death. Um, and who boy, it it is it is quite an ending. Let's just hear a little bit of it. This is uh, performed by uh, Rostropovich is the conductor. He's conducting the Phil, uh, London Philharmonic with Galina Vishnevskaya. Thank you, as uh, Katerina. And ooh, just just listen to this. just like the absolute rage that you can hear it, it's 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 subtle it's as subtle as it is loud and i love just the pure absolute you know horror of that moment and it, it really puts a uh puts a stamp on the whole opera and just like lets it lets it stick there and of course famously stalin saw the opera despite all of the good reviews um stormed out um and uh, the, the very next day, the official newspaper of Russia uh, published a retraction of all previous good reviews and said it was uh, muddle instead of music. And I believe uh, an American newspaper eventually called it um, pornophon- <laughs> pornophony, which is very funny. <laughs> uh, so uh, and that almost ended Shostakovich's career. And if you believe some of the biographies, possibly his life as well, which is also horrifying. So it, it will be a central episode in the upcoming Shostakovich biopic. The Devil Wears Pravda. <laughs> we jump ahead to 1957 uh, for the world premiere of Poulenc's second opera, The Dialogues of the Carmelites, which took place in Milan, I want to say, at La Scala. Um, this show, it's, it's hard to describe what this show is like and what the musical style is. In a way, it's reminiscent of Pelias and Melisande in that there's not really many tunes. There's just like these conversations that uh, illustrate uh, a story over time. And we just get these little episodes, these little dialogues that sort of, you know, tell the story 
without having a very clear narrative. We just see the progression of this one character, Blanche de la Force. And uh, yeah, there are some great musical moments, but there isn't, really isn't a tune in this show until the very end. And we get the Salve Regina chorus of the Carmelite nuns as they uh, go for a mass martyrdom. They all uh, uh, you know, get executed one by one on the guillotine. And while they're singing this uh, Salve Regina chorus, and Poulenc was brilliant at writing choral music. And so mm-hmm. here he's, fle- he's flexing his love of sort of, um, I want to say the cantigas or like the sort of like medieval um, modal, it sort of feels like, you know, plain song. Um, and uh, it's, you know, heavily orchestrated. And we hear all of the nuns singing this thing in uh, basically in unison. And the chorus uh, diminishes voice by voice until we're left with three, then two, then one voice, the final voice being... And the, the mob is going on in the background too. Yeah. Ooing and aahing behind them. And like, yeah. But but they are they are part of the orchestral texture more so yeah. than like the actual action on stage. So the way that the voices uh, get fewer and fewer as each... Uh, as you know, as the as the chorus, as each nun uh, is beheaded, is in and of itself very upsetting, and would be effective, but just to put like the icing on the cake, uh, we hear the actual sound of the guillotine in the show, and the first time you see this opera, um, it's shocking, and the first time you you know even when you listen to it after knowing what's happening, it's shocking. And there's something about the way Poulenc uh, times the guillotine where you don't expect that it. it's not happening like on the downbeat mm-hmm. or like every fourth measure. It's just it just sort of happens randomly. And that, I think, is scary. Like when there's that element of surprise that you know it's coming, but you don't know exactly when. And then one voice goes away. It's ugh, it's rough. Uh, let's <laughs> Let's listen to a little bit of this. This is from the recent... Uh, Metropolitan Opera production with uh, our friend Aaron Morley as Sir Constance, the penultimate one to be beheaded, and finally with Isabel Leonard as Blanche de la Force.
some cheerful Halloween music for you. <laughs> <laughs> something for for you to listen to on your way to church. Yeah, let's get to something a, a little bit more. Uh, tuneful and make you feel like, oh, opera is fun. Matt? Well, this isn't really a particularly tuneful section uh, of Virgiletto that we're hopping back to. Um, but it is really the big reveal of what happened it, it, during the thunderstorm that we talked about earlier. So as the storm ends, Rigoletto comes to collect the body of the Duke, he thinks, dun, 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 and pay the assassin. <laughs> and he's like practically salivating with excitement over having gotten his revenge. Um and he doesn't, so much so that he doesn't really seem to notice that the bag that he's given by Spotafuchide feels a little light. No, no. <laughs> it's not until he hears off stage the Duke singing that stupid little canzone, La oh, Donne Mobile. It's such which, a devastating moment. Which is the third time in that opera that you're hearing that melody. And uh, what can we say other than that we stand a little diegesis? Um, but he is sitting there, like, having this realization, watching it play out, like, piece after piece in real time, while he hears his nemesis singing a carefree song about how women are really the fickle ones. And as he's trying to convince himself that what he thinks happened didn't happen, um, it did. Yep. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It, It sure did, Matt. It sure did. And his interruptions, like underneath the Duke singing, get increasingly panicky. There's a lot of tremolo that happens in the strings as it starts to occur to him. And then the orchestra takes over this like crazy heartbeat pounding uh, as he questions what could have happened. And then when he opens the sack and sees that it's Gilda there, and he says, Mia figlia, Gilda, there's this really shocking modulation. uh, And he runs over to the door and starts pounding on it and knocking on it but no one is there and there, there's this alternating like panic and uh heightening of the emotion and kind of resignation to what he has done as the orchestra figures like get go from being more and more agitated to kind of calming down and coming back down but that like that oscillation happens a few times uh let's hear a clip of cornell mcneil from that same met telecast singing this moment Hello! Oh, 
è impossibile per Verona in via e adesso oh mia figlia fanciulla a me rispondi l'assassino mi svela nessuno nessuno mia figlia mia figlia oh mia figlia even though the the audience already knows what has happened there's still a, a way to that that there it's really masterful composing in the way that that drama builds bit by bit for the character and mm-hmm, you even mm-hmm. still feel pulled along by it uh it does turn out that Jill is not fully dead and they still manage to sing a love uh, not a love duet but a, fa- a fatherly love duet for another there we you know, go. 8 or 10 minutes um before capping off the drama but can you imagine as a parent just like opening up a body bag and finding out that it's not your nemesis it's in fact the whole the the whole reason that you had for for hiring this assassin in the first place it's honestly one of the best moments of dramatic irony in the whole opera you know cuz the audience knows what's happened uh Rigoletto doesn't but like the way it's revealed is just so perfect and like knife twisting <laughs> you know literally uh and uh you know speaking of knives twisting i have one more, one more for you this is from the opera uh, Lulu by Alban Berg. And I know everyone has uh, rolled their eyes and turned off the podcast when they hear me say that. But this really is a fantastic and horrifying moment in the opera. Now, I want to I want to say something about the limitations of opera as an art form here. Uh, obviously, every art form expresses some things better than others. Like as good as the ending of Rigoletto is in terms of creating a horrifying moment like that, the fact is in the 19th century, you still had to have that full dying duet. You know, you weren't allowed really to have that immediate sort of like blood and guts, you know, murder, shock uh, and then go on um, like you would and say, you know, your average horror film uh, until until at least the Verismo era, pro- honestly, probably even later. But this is a great example of what you can do as a composer to really have the true visceral shock of a single horrifying moment put into uh, put into the orchestra and expressed in a way that transcends the actual horror of the blood and guts, you know, murder being committed on stage. So uh, to, to set what's going on here, Lulu has had a huge fall from grace. Um, on, and I say grace very lightly. She started off pretty low and, you know, got it just got even worse for her and everyone in her little um, little troop. She has had to uh, essentially become a sex worker in order to pay her bills. And um, at the end, one of those men comes back and out of nowhere, really, uh, stabs her to death. Um, And if you if you're just reading along the libretto, it seems like it happens really, really suddenly, like uh, on a time scale of quickness that you wouldn't expect from grand opera. Um, but it is genuinely that fast. And what is so interesting about this uh, is that you have a moment where there's so much beautiful singing in Lulu. It is atonal, but it's also genuinely beautiful throughout most of the opera. But in her final moments, 
she does not sing. She loses the singing completely. Her last words are nine, nine, no, no. And then just a horror horrendous scream. Um, and, uh, and I don't mean an opera scream where you're going, Oh, you know, I mean a real scream. Like even if you compare it to Wozzeck, uh, you know, the final, this final scream of Marie is, you know, a, 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 a B, right. I think it's a B natural is the death motif in Wozzeck. She has to hit that in order to like have the, the motif be met. So, you know, that, uh, in terms of mot- motivic writing, she is dead. In this, it is sh- there is no music, just a scream, and then the instant after she screams, the orchestra imitates that scream and extends it. Now, this recording that we're about to hear, it's just a moment, as I said, um, but this is actually a recording from the suite uh, conducted by a friend of the show, uh, Barbara Hannigan. This is from her Crazy Girl Crazy album with the Ludwig Orchestra. Now, when you're listening to this, she opts not to put in the actual scream. She does sing all the parts that are required in the suite, but she does not put in the 9-9 and scream. She really emphasizes the quietness right before it happens because the orchestra has been going it fades out and then she has complete silence and then the orchestra does the scream for her and i think it's really good for showing exactly what is happening so initially you hit the huge uh percussive smash of 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 the stab right and you hear the extremely high brass you know shrieking out and like and like that's sort of the pain flowing through the body and it's held for several bars but Barbara Hannigan takes it really slowly and you he, and you feel the 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 pulse quickening underneath you hear the dun 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 and there's a certain point where the brass instruments cut out completely and it's just these extremely high strings like 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 psycho right um, and, and for me, when I'm listening to it, that is the point where her breath, the breath in her lungs is gone after the stab, when the air that has been giving her life is gone. And then when the brass comes back, back in, it's a bubbling up and that's her coughing up the blood, you know, and then after that, she is just dead, you know, and I can't think of another moment in opera that is so one to one visceral, horrifying, enhanced by the music, but also not being held back by uh, by the need to have music playing. Let's just hear just the very, just just basically the scream and the lead into the scream. Do we even need to hear the clip after that amazing <laughs> realization of it?
That's a scream, baby. That's a scream. That's, that's Halloween. Travel back in time this weekend to the origins of the music that you love. Join the Oriana Singers, Chicago's premier chamber choir, for Monteverdi's Vespers. Don't miss the chance to experience this rarely performed 17th century masterwork live with period instruments. It's Monteverdi's Vespers, presented by the Oriana Singers. Saturday, October 28th in Oak Park, and Sunday, October 29th in Chicago. For tickets and more information, go to oriana.org. That's O-R-I-A-N-A dot O-R-G. And use the promo code time travel for $5 off your ticket price. Now that's a scary good deal. Yeah, you ain't got something to say? Then yeah, alright, you can say something. This is Listener Mailbag. Before we get to the two-minute drill, I thought we might l- reach into this Listener Mailbag. Oh, oh, that's actually a bunch of eyes. Oh, wait, wait, let me try over here. Oh, that's a bunch of spiders. Oh, here we go. Here's a letter. This is from Pat in Birmingham, Alabama. Wow, what a coincidence. That's where I'm from. Uh, Pat says, thank you for the podcast. Love the show. Since I didn't see any of you here at the Epicenter, I decided to send you a quick report of last night's Composer Spotlight. Last night marked three months until the world premiere of Touch in Birmingham, Alabama. Carla Lucero is a remarkable composer and librettist. Lucero held the complete attention of the opera-loving Tide, Razorback, and Mounties fans with vivid descriptions and storytelling of her research into Alabama hero Helen Keller and Anne Sullivan. The work expands Helen's character from a deaf and mute woman on stage into a complex being through employing several voices interlaced with unique music composed using the keys D, E, A, F. Uh, Peter Fagan sang an excerpt of his aria. Pat says, the world premiere will certainly be an international highlight of 2024, and we are so pleased to see Opera Birmingham commission a great work and to have the opportunity to immerse ourselves into the story and legacy of Alabama and national heroes like Helen and Anne with a vehicle like opera. And he says, roll tide roll. So thanks, Pat. (laughs) Really appreciate that little last part just for me. Uh, We'll go over now to... Oh my God, is, are those guts? Nope, just spaghetti. Uh, this is from <laughs> Dale in Arizona who writes, Phoenix composer librettist Greg Kaler made a big hit this weekend in Phoenix with his new opera Frankenstein for Arizona Opera. Great singing and stagecraft by cast standouts Edward Parks, a baritone, as the monster, and Katie Beck, mezzo, as Elizabeth, the wife of Victor Frankenstein. The staging was well done, performed on an atmospheric set, allowing plenty of room for movement. I was delighted that this English-language piece had surtitles in both English and Spanish. Arizona Opera has made great strides in appealing to our large Latino community and to local history. The story of Frankenstein is told from the viewpoint of the monster and was moving and thought-provoking. The voices have room to soar in Kaler's score, and Beck's second-act aria should be on the radar of any mezzo. I predict many regional companies will find success with this chamber opera. We love Katie Beck here in Chicago. She was uh, a member of the Ryan Opera Center Ensemble for a couple of years, or maybe just one year, because she's so good. She didn't need to. She didn't need to. <laughs> I forget, but it was during COVID, so it was tough. Uh, so thank you to Pat in Birmingham. Uh, you're definitely going to get the merch, the foam finger and the coaster and the lapel pin. And I think Dale has written in before, but hey, why not? I have another set. I have another foam our, finger. Go for yeah, it. You, so, <laughs> One yeah, for each so hand. You have, <laughs> yeah. 
But for sure, uh, you will recognize uh, these voices. Hello, Opera Box Score. It's PJ and Donald. We're here again. Hey, Donald. Hi, PJ. Great to have you here, man. We're going to tell everybody about our little experience of a couple of weeks ago, and that is at the Giulio Gari Foundation Gala and Winners Concert. It was at a beautiful church in New York City. It was the winners and some others uh, performing for us. Donald, just tell us your impressions. Well, we opened up with our first prize winner, who was Kimon Murray, and he's a countertenor. He's also the first countertenor that's ever won first prize in our competition. And he opened with a very difficult Rossini aria from Semiramide, made famous in recent years by uh, Marilyn Horn as, as she partnered Joan Sutherland in that opera. Then uh, we had our bass, uh, Young Wong Park, who sang Viraviso, which is the uh, bass aria from Bellini's Ipuritani. We had Shanae Curtis singing the Non Mi Dir from Mozart's Don Giovanni. And then we had a little Wagner, our second prize winner, Lebu, who's in the uh, Lindemann program at the Metropolitan Opera. He sang uh, Mox Du Mein Kind from Der Fliegende Holländer. Then we had our tenor, our dramatic tenor, Joseph Saki, who sang uh, Dusch die Wälder from uh, von Weber's uh, Der Freischutz. Very rarely heard. The last time it was done at the Met was over 50 years ago, about 50 years ago, actually. We had our one of our sopranos, a grant winner, uh, Chelsea Linnae, Linnae, who sang um, Regnava nel Silenzio, from, that's Lucia's aria, from the first act of Lucia di Lamamor. We had a very interesting new piece, well, not new, but new, new, new to uh, New York. Daniel Catan, a Mexican composer, his uh, Florencia in El Amazonas, and uh, Amanda Batista, who's a young soprano in the Metropolitan Opera Lindemann program, sang Donde Estas Cristobal. Uh, then we had our bass, Young Juan Park, back for the Song of the Viking Guest from Rumsky Korsakov's Sadko, which is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful piece of music. And uh, Lebu, our second prize winner, came back and sang the uh, King Philip's aria from Verdi's Don Carlos in the original French, El ne m'aime pas. We had our baritone Spencer Reichman singing a sonio o realtà from Falstaff. It's Ford's Jealousy aria. Then Sinead came back, sang the Ave Maria from the last act of Verdi's Otello. And we closed with what to me is one of the most glorious moments in all of opera. It's the John Nellanote Densa, the love duet from the first act of Verdi's Otello. And it was a beautiful, beautiful way to end a concert. Because at the end, Otello says to Desdemona, Venere Splende, let's go in splendor. It was gorgeous. Well planned, Donald, by you. I really applaud you, you for the work. It was Thank gloriously assembled. That. And I personally got a chance to sit in on the rehearsals the day before, a rainy oh, yeah. New York day at Piano Piano. And there I was with Donald, Mary Pinto, the accompanist, and then singer after singer came in from the airport or from London or from wherever they were coming. It was also glamorous. And I had a chance to sit in there and watch the work. And it was so cool. So that's our little report, Opera Box Score, our big report, Opera Box Score, from yeah, the Giulio Gari Foundation concert. Thanks so much. See ya. Our friends, PJ and Donald, thank you for uh, the recap of the Giulio Gari uh, singing competition. If you want to get a foam finger, tell us about Frankenstein, or just say Roll Tide, send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes 
at mailbag at operaboxscore.com, or you can record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website, operaboxscore.com. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. In a continuation of the outrage over the defunding of English National Opera, three prominent conductors have written, dum dum bum bum, an open letter. Ooh. Edward Gardner, Sir Mark Elder, and Sir Antonio Papano are calling for an intervention to prevent Eno's demise. <laughs> warning: An opera company is defined by its chorus and orchestra. Many of these highly trained musicians and singers will not be able to continue in their jobs, and anyone who can find alternative employment will. Meanwhile, Opera America is scheming with companies across North America to lure audiences, lure to lure audiences to the theater with get this <laughs> crazy idea, a discount on tickets. <gasps> Opera Passport is a reciprocal subscription program encouraging audiences to travel North America and redeem discounts of 10% or more. The initiative already <laughs> includes 85 participating companies of Opera America's 203 partners, including Lyric Opera of Chicago, San Francisco Opera, and Friends of the Show, Opera Philadelphia. Hey, if you come to Chicago, you can save 10% and pick up your OBS foam finger, fan foam finger in person. Teatro San Carlo is warning about a potential cancellation of the opening of Rossini's Maometto Secondo due to the participation of theater workers in a national strike, which is for the renewal of the Opera and Symphonic Foundation collective bargaining agreement. That's a real bummer for all you diehard Maometto Secondo fans out there. Hey. That's the two of us. In better labor news, <laughs> Philadelphia Orchestra has reached a deal for a new three-year contract with the Musicians Union. The agreement raises salaries nearly 16% over the time period, a central demand of the musicians, and requires the orchestra to increase the number of musicians it hires each year to fill vacancies. We stuck together and refused to accept substandard deal after substandard deal, said David Fay, a double bass player and union leader. This contract is a victory for the present and future of the Philadelphia Orchestra and its world-class musicians. A recent study of U.S. opera companies found, and this will shock you, that men accounted for 95% of the conductors at the 11 largest companies between 2005 and 2021, as well as 85% of directors, 88% of set designers, 85% of lighting designers, 59% of costume designers, and 99% of opera podcasters. In 2023, <laughs> these rates of representation for women are not okay and not necessary because women are out there. They're working in other fields and other performing arts, said Caitlin Vincent, an author of the study. It's a major award news. Musical America's 2024 honorees will include Lisa Doffitson as Artist of the Year and Antonio Papano as Conductor of the Year, along with Kevin Putz, who was awarded Composer of the Year. Bradley Cooper's Maestro will receive the Gotham Award for Cultural Icon and Creator Tribute. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, that's an award that they have, apparently. I don't know okay. what to tell okay. you. <laughs> okay. Let's leave it in. Uh, the first major award for the biopic set to open this fall. Renowned mezzo-soprano Waltraud Meyer will retire from the stage following the Berlin State Opera's current production of Elektra. That's after 47 years of performing in the most demanding mezzo-soprano and soprano roles. In a wide-ranging interview with the New York Times, Meyer described just a bit of her artistic process for choosing to take on a new role, saying, I ask myself, what do I want to say? What could I be in this role? And then I decide if I should do it and how I'll do it. The conversation <laughs> about how to do it vocally comes after. 
check out our show notes for the full interview. In trade news, Lori Dector Wright has been appointed the next general director and CEO of Tulsa Opera. She comes to the beleaguered company with over 30 years of experience. Across opera and executive nonprofit leadership, said artistic director Aaron Beck, quote, when I agreed to step in as general director on an interim basis a few months ago, it was my hope that the company would find a leader like Lori Dector Wright. On the disabled list, Victoria Carlson dislocated her knee during a performance of Don Giovanni in Malmo, but that didn't stop her from completing the show. She has since returned to the production and will continue the run through December. Exit stage right. Japanese composer Akira Nishimura has died at the age of 69. Nishimura composed two operas, Hot Rain in August and Asters, the latter of which premiered at the new National Theatre Tokyo to great acclaim. And not exiting stage right, the Israel Philharmonic has confirmed that Zubin Mehta is alive and well. After a fake account impersonating the LA Philharmonic falsely announces death on X, Twitter, quote, Dear friends, there are so many rumors that Zubin has passed away. This is not true. Ten minutes ago, we called him. We woke him up and he laughed about the whole thing. The origin of the fake news may have been an account created by Tommaso De Benedetti, known for his dedication to generating hoaxes of this nature. And on this day, October 23rd, first performances include Rameau's opera ballet Anacreon in 1754 and Alexander Borodin's Prince Igor in St. Petersburg in 1890. Birthdays include German composer Gustav Albert Lortzing in Berlin in 1801, French soprano Denise Duval in Paris in 1921 the late Ned Roram in 1923. Happy birthday to French composer Isabelle Aboulker, born this day in 1938. And Lawrence Foster, the American conductor, born this day in 1941. And a correction on last week's on this day, October 16th should have marked the birthday of Marin Alsop, the American conductor born in 1956. Happy birthday, Marin, and not Lydia Tarr. Uh, and uh, on October 16th, in 1962, it was the birth of the late, great Dmitry Vorovstovsky in Siberia. And that is your two-minute drill. To make up for skipping him last week, you just heard a clip of Dima singing The Demon's Romance from Arthur Rubinstein's opera. Oh, the spooky. Same name. Yeah, what could be spookier than a demon who wants to destroy humanity? Before we leave on this day, um, one of the more, um, we don't usually talk about deaths on, on this day, but since it's the spooktacular, we'll include one. Uh, in 2004, October 23rd, that was the day that Robert Merrill died oh. while watching 
game one of the World Series. We know he was a baseball fan, what? so he left this earth happy. Yeah, yeah. And and spookily, I assume. Let's <laughs> talk about uh, Opera America and this passport. Uh, obviously, 10%, you know, really uh, really getting out there. Hopefully, well, I think, that's, I think that's the base. point. <laughs> yeah, <that's> the... <laughs> <laughs> so the gist of it is that there are a bunch of companies that are Opera America partners. Uh, how many at this point? 83. And uh, you get a passport, I think, and you travel North America and you flash your fancy card and you get 10% off. <laughs> I'm sure you can find similar discounts or better discounts just by like going into Google and, and typing, what is a discount for the show tonight? <laughs> and after you go to 10 <laughs> operas, Opera America will pay for your 11th. That, now that would be a good deal. I would love that. That's. <laughs> I mean, the, the point is that they're trying to, because they the studies show that uh, first-time opera goers are up. So yep. they're trying to encourage people uh, who are first-timers to go check it out and be a first-timer somewhere else. At the same time, like overall attendance is still way down after the pandemic, and it's not like it was doing great before the pandemic. So yeah. just wanting to get some butts back in seats any way we can. Yeah, I'm not sure if first-time opera goers are actually of the econ- socioeconomic uh, status to be traveling all over the country to go see opera. I think that's for the diehard, you know, opera queens and kings, you know, uh, <laughs> who have the expendable income to get on a plane to go see, you know, a show. Malmeto the second. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's a strategy. We'll see how we'll we'll give you a report on uh, opera passport after it's been around for a year or so. So remind us, folks, that by the next spooktacular, you want to hear about. How Opera Passport did. Let's talk a little bit about Valtraut Meyer. And I believe, as always, Matt has opinions on Valtraut Meyer. I love Valtraut Meyer. I mean, doesn't? She really could capture that spirit of just like leave it all on stage, leave it all on the field as a singer. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I first became aware of her watching the video of the the five-act French Don Carlo from, I think it's Lyon, with like Cara Tomatala and Roberto Alagna, where she does a bang-up job as Eboli. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But that is really just a portion of her career, and th- her main prominence, I would say, is in that the Wagner and Strauss repertoire. Like, yeah. she, I can only imagine the force of nature that her um, Ortrude's curse must have had. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I, I bet that she wouldn't have been above, like, actually ripping down scenery uh, <laughs> be, because she was just such a stage animal. And that really gets called yeah. out in, in any review about her. In, like, her willingness to maybe sacrifice some of the beauty of tone to make sure that the drama comes alive. Uh, but in a way, like, the, new, <laughs> the Times in a bit of a shady review of, like, her Santuzza and Cavalleria Rusticana wrote that she gradually worked an incisive telling edge into her voice without sacrificing its basic beauty. Even her shrieks were musical. <laughs> and she and she projected a riveting dramatic presence, convincingly fragile as well as ferocious. And that is, like, that's a refrain from whenever people will talk about her performances. She uh, kind of sat right on the border of being a high mezzo-soprano and a dramatic soprano, so she was able to successfully tackle some dramatic soprano repertoire, um, notably Isolde. She was one of right. the most acclaimed Isoldes of the late 20th, early 21st um, centuries, uh, which again is a role that would suit her really well because of just like someone who can really bring that passion to life in a score yeah. that has many, many hours uh, to it. Uh, but just... <laughs> yes. who, like who can 
understand that slow burn of the character and make sure that every moment counts uh, is like really what I think of with Meyer as a singer. She always excels in roles that I feel like often go to real park and barkers, you know, and she is not that. And she's, she was always exciting. And like, you know, she she deserves a, a retirement. I'm sad that I will have probably never gotten to see her live in anything. But, you know, if she I wants her to come on the Fidelio show in, uh, in Vienna, and it was pretty jealous epic. Drink. <laughs> Uh, well, if she wants to come on uh, on the show at some point and do a quick little private performance of something for us, one last hurrah before retirement, her agents know where to find us. I, I think that, you know, now that she's retired, she'll actually have more time. So maybe she could be our new guest panelist, you know. <laughs> we really do need to uh, uh, bring more women in, Oliver. Uh, <laughs> as these findings show us, um, now, we all had the same reaction when we saw this story going around the internet. And we're like, didn't we do this story? And the answer <laughs> is the story we did was actually an almost identical study that they did in Australia. So it's just good to know that we are on par with Australia in maintaining sex uh, structures in classical music so you know i i mean gender is one just one barrier for us or one uh hurdle to to what do you call it when you get a hurdle to overcome <laughs> um, to, to jump <laughs> yeah yeah i mean a theme in variations if you will yes mm. i mean yes it's true like women need more representation in leadership in opera in general everywhere but that's just that's just part one, and um, I feel like we are now recalibrating post uh, twenty twenty, and um, organizations are getting back to their old nonsense. And I speak from personal experience mm. that um, it's still a white man's game uh, in leadership in yeah. many in many arenas mm-hmm. and i'll just leave that there because it's yeah um we paid a lot of lip service to diversity and inclusion but um look at where we're at you know once again i i feel like it's the it's the difference between the public facing and the back backstage leadership you know it's uh you know you can put on you know singers of color and uh more women uh you know in visible positions to the audience but but in the back uh, it's, I'll, I'll add that you know, the the people who do the consulting and who do the studies will say, well, you know, in 2020, uh, you made all of these changes and this is where you're at now, you know, and we'll conveniently forget out. Oh, yeah. And there was this thing called the pandemic that, yeah. like, you <laughs> and, know, and that's <laughs> rather famously like slow incremental progress is is the game when you're talking yeah, right. about those kinds of gains in in representation, but more importantly, like in opportunities. And one thing that this study does point out is that when you have women in leadership roles, like as the director, then you do tend to get more women in the other mm-hmm. kinds of mm-hmm. creative leadership roles because there is already less of a barrier. And and uh, Francesca Zambella was the example that they brought in just because she's really like the most prominent one the the really right. most prominent women uh female general director of a company but that like creating a pipeline of talent was very important to her and she made it uh like a, a big part of her career yeah yeah it, it's it's not just representation it's the fact that representation of diverse voices genuinely adds diversity it is not simply just a look look here's a pr stunt like you need to have genuine representation across the board uh, let's close things out with poor Victoria Carlson 
dislocating her knee on stage. And apparently, according to her social media, when she dislocated it, she shrieked. And a lot of people thought it was a strong character choice. And apparently it was not. And she snapped it back into place during the course of that same scene and finished the the show. That is the art of Victoria Carlson. And (laughs) And that is the art of horror and Halloween. I don't know. There's something there. It's the Halloween spooktacular. What are you going to do? Let's wrap the show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. It's how we end every single show somehow. Let's start with uh, Oliver Camacho. I went to the HD of Dead Men Walking on Saturday, and uh, I've seen a lot of things over the past couple of weeks, uh, operas, orchestral concerts, whatever. I've been kind of going night after night to events, and I've enjoyed many things. Um, this was impactful in a way that I wasn't expecting it to be. And I've seen Dead Man Walking before. I've listened to it a number of times. This production uh, was something else. Uh, Mm. Congratulations to the entire team, um, Joyce Donato and friend of the show, Ryan McKinney. uh, That, I mean, there were many scenes that were just so upsetting where I just had to just like take a breath and try to keep looking. But the final scene and how they staged it with video cameras, uh, for those of you who saw it, you know you know what I'm talking about. Um, they made it really real for the audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot. So um, yeah, congratulations for putting that out there in the world for people to see and to really feel like opera can be that potent uh, and uh, impactful. Matt Cummings. On a completely different note, just to call out a couple stories that couldn't make it into our drill uh, because they were extremely visual, but that we want to share with you all in our show notes uh, in celebration of the Sydney Opera House turning 50. Mm. So happy birthday to those iconic sales. And please enjoy uh, both a BBC photo story with many of the most important historical moments at the landmark, as well as a really fun music video from English comedy musician Tim Minchin about the importance of taking risks. I have one more little good call, another addition to the uh, On This Day segment in the two-minute drill, but it wasn't an opera, so we couldn't include it. But I did want to mention that in 1970, it was the first performance of George Crumb's Black Angels from 13 Images from the Dark Land for String Quartet, Amplified screen, String Quartet. And man, if there isn't a more horrifying quartet out there, like, I, 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 I don't want to hear it, because this, to me... Whenever the Halloween season rolls around and the ghosts and goblins are out and about and the vampires are flitting around every corner, I want to hear Black Angels because it makes me feel like I'm scarier than any of them could ever hope to be. I'm thinking that like you're going to be throwing a Halloween party and you have a playlist like it's Monster Mash and whatnot, and all of a sudden Black Angels comes on and like you I've spot, done it like, before you, Oliver you spot your best again. friend across and like you high five yeah George Crumb <laughs> <laughs> that is it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website operaboxscore.com and that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are give back to the OBS on the support the team page your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is Dracula. 
I mean me. For your co-host, Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you push your bully into an icy river. We're back with an all-new show next week when Ryan Speedo Green returns to tell the story being cast in Champion. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Persian princes. Join us.